Today's podcast is sponsored by the Law Center in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. The Law Center is a full-service, multi-office law firm serving clients in Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas. Do your clients need a will or trust or simply a review of their existing estate planning docs? Has someone died and your client needs help maneuvering through the trust administration or probate process? Do your business owner clients have the documents in place to ensure a smooth transition of the business? Contact the Law Center and let us help you help your clients. The Law Center offers probate and trust administration services throughout Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska, as well as estate asset protection and tax planning assistance. To learn more, visit thelawcenterpc.com. Welcome to Tax Boss. I'm Meryl Bailey in Orlando, Florida. And I'm Crystal Woodbury in Denver, Colorado. We're each licensed as attorneys and CPAs. We help our clients get the best results because we work well with their trusted advisors. Tax Boss is a podcast for advisors from multiple professions to get together to discuss common client issues and how we can work together to solve them. Today, we are going to discuss do not resuscitate orders, physicians' orders for life-sustaining treatment, healthcare surrogates, living wills, and the difference between them. Crystal, as you may know, I'm teaching a class at Rollins College this month about estate planning, and one of the students asked me about a do not resuscitate order. She said, could she come to me so that I could prepare a DNR for her? And I had to explain to her that a DNR, the do not resuscitate, is not the same thing as a healthcare surrogate, and it's not the same thing as a living will, and it's not the same thing as a physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment or a pulsed. And her eyes glazed over and I thought she was going to weep. So I thought we could discuss the difference between those documents today. I think that's a great idea, Meryl. I have clients who often look at their packet of drafts of estate planning documents and wonder, where's the DNR? Yes. Yeah. So the answer is a do not resuscitate order is not a document that a lawyer prepares A DNR is a document that a physician prepares. It is actually a physician's prescription that says that CPR is not to be initiated if breathing stops or the heart stops beating. So it deals with one thing. It deals with CPR. It doesn't deal with any type of other treatment. Now, the DNRs in Florida used to be facility-specific, meaning if you were in Hospital 1 and you signed a DNR or your doctor prepared one for you that you signed, and then you were moved to another hospital, you'd have to get a new DNR because they weren't portable amongst facilities. Or more often, you'd be in a hospital and they would transfer you to rehab and you'd have to get a new document. But now in Florida, they are portable between facilities. But one of the more fun facts for my clients is that they traditionally have been printed on canary yellow paper. And if it wasn't on canary yellow paper, it didn't work. And you had to have it posted either on the front door, at the bedside, or on your refrigerator for it to be valid. Right next to your no soliciting sign on the front door. (laughs) Warning, bad dog. (laughs) Uh, That's interesting, Meryl. In Colorado, I don't know that there was ever a rule that it had to be on a certain color paper, but most retirement communities now in Colorado, the DNR is printed on a bright lime green paper and residents are told to post it on the side of the refrigerator. Yeah. Now, the DNR is different than a healthcare surrogate and a living will, which is what the lawyers prepare. Right. 
Right. In Colorado, we have our living will as a separate document from the healthcare surrogate or healthcare power of attorney. I know some states combine those into the same form. In Florida, I think you legally could combine them, but generally we prepare them separately for a couple different reasons. A lot of times people don't want to name the same person. They have different people for the different roles. Uh-huh. And when a doctor asks for one document, I don't want to overwhelm them with too much information. Right. So we right. do ours separately. So Crystal, tell me what you include in a healthcare surrogate. In our healthcare surrogate, the client will name a person and typically a backup. Married couples often name their spouse and then they'll name a backup or backups as a person to serve as their proxy, their decision maker, their agent to make healthcare, medical, bodily decisions for them if they're unable to make them on their own, either because they don't have the capacity or they're unconscious or whatever the reason might be. So I tell my clients that this is a person who can make informed consent medical care decisions to keep you alive because they think you're going to get better. Yes. And depending on what a client may want decisions to be made, we provide guiding language for the proxy so that they have some idea of of what the client likely would choose if they were able to make the decision themselves. Such as? Um, Such as um, if they need to be put in a nursing home or assisted living, some sort of skilled care facility, if there is a geographical area that they would like to remain in, give that guidance. Um, If the funds permit, some may say, I specifically want to go here or I want to be in this area. Um, If there are certain medications that they are allergic to or don't want to take, we put that in there or put it as an addendum. Um, We advise clients to have a conversation with the person or persons they're naming that they're going to be named, make sure they're comfortable with the decisions they think they would like to make. But we provide some guidance either within the document or as an attachment to the document. That's so interesting to me to hear because that's not the Florida way. (laughs) In Florida, it is simply a legal document that gives someone the authority to make whatever decisions need to be made. Yes. And and I think in Colorado, in Colorado in general, that rings true. Um, I have several clients that outside of my law practice, I serve as a decision maker for through their healthcare power of attorney. And so this has come about because I find it helpful. If if I were naming my parent or my spouse or my sister as my healthcare agent, they have a relationship with me that's typically longstanding and they know what I would like. Um, for if you're naming someone who doesn't have that longstanding relationship, they could be walking in blind and to give them as much guidance as you can is very helpful when it comes time to make those decisions. That is great advice. I tell clients to have these conversations and to practice these conversations with their loved ones and the people that they've named. But um, I leave it up to them to document that outside of my legal document. Yeah. But I can see and how that's that, really helpful. Yes. And I I have just as many clients who do the, for lack of a better word, standard document where it's just giving their agent authority to make those bodily decisions. But I, it's worth the conversation of, especially if you're not naming a family member, what would you like them to know that they may not know? Yeah, that's really great advice. I, I come from a family that everybody talks all the time about all sorts of things. So Mm -hmm. I have to remember that not all of my clients have (laughs) discussions like that. 
Right, right. So, Meryl, let's talk about uh, the living will document, because most of the time, if your living will is going to be used, it will be used in conjunction with the healthcare surrogate document. True. But I tell my clients that they don't have to name the same person, that generally for the healthcare surrogate, I want them to name someone who is comfortable with the medical situation and isn't afraid of going to a hospital and understands medical lingo and would attend doctor's appointments with them and take great notes and is kind of an upstanding citizen as far as appointments. For the living will, I tell them I want a bulldog who will make sure that what they want to have happen happens. And I say, like, if you were in a knife fight, who would have your back? That's who I want for the living will. That's interesting, Meryl, because I think Colorado's living will is quite a bit different than Florida's. In Colorado, our living will doesn't name a person. Ah. Our living will is a document of guidance and permission, and it specifically references the healthcare power of attorney document with a section that says you you select either my agent under my healthcare power of attorney attorney has the authority to override decisions I've made the selections I've made in my living will or my agent under my healthcare power of attorney shall be bound by the selections I've made in my living will. Oh, that's very different than Florida law. It is. So under Florida law, the written document is a is names a person who will pull the plug. Mm-hmm. if you're in that situation. And basically, there are three paths that get you to the situation. But the situation is you are a, a body in a bed and you have lost the capacity to communicate in any way. Because if you could wiggle your toes or blink your eyes in response to a question, they will talk to you directly. But you're past that point. And two physicians have said that medical science is exhausted and there's no hope that you'll survive. Something artificial is keeping you alive. And if it were taken away, you would die a natural death. So I asked my clients if they were in that situation, would they want to be kept on life support or would they want to die the natural death? And generally they say that they want to die a natural death. I do have one client who said, nope, he wants to be kept alive forever and ever and ever because someday there might be something that that cures him. And so that's what we put in the document. Um, But we also, in our document, specifically reference hydration and nutrition. And we do that because there was a famous case of a, a woman named Terry Schiavo, and the only thing keeping her alive, she wasn't on a breathing machine. She wasn't on dialysis. She had a peg tube, a feeding tube, into which they were pouring insure and water. And the legal argument was, is the peg tube artificial life support or is it not? Because really it's just the means for getting nutrition in and nutrition is not artificial life support. So all we're trying to do is keep our clients off the front page of the local paper and keep the governor who was involved in the Terry Schiavo case out of the bedside and say, okay, do you consider the peg tube artificial life support and would you want it taken away if it's the only thing keeping you alive? So we make the clients affirmatively discuss that. Yeah. And and Colorado's document has those similar requirements and choices. So um, the Colorado document is split. You can make end-of-life decisions if the diagnosis is terminal condition. And it's, do I want life-sustaining procedures withdrawn or withheld, continued for a period of days, or continued indefinitely, and then same for artificial nutrition hydration. Then it has a separate page that has those same choices if the diagnosis is, ter- is uh, 
Persistent vegetative persistent state. Vegetative, yes, persistent vegetative state. But again, we don't name a person in the document. That's something that the healthcare power of attorney would handle. And I happen to know because I also practice in Kansas. Kansas does not yet allow you to make end of life decisions if the diagnosis is persistent vegetative state. It is really? just permanent terminal condition. Uh, now, see, Florida has three different paths that that can get you there. One is the persistent vegetative state. The other is a terminal condition such as cancer. And mm -hmm. the third is an end stage condition such oh. as uh, dementia. So most dementia patients tend to die from pneumonia yes. because the synapses are lapsing and they don't tell the lungs, the heart to beat, which doesn't make the lungs um, open as much and they get pneumonia and they die from it. But the, so the death certificate says pneumonia, but the end stage condition that got them there was dementia or Alzheimer's. It's helpful that Florida addresses end-stage condition. Now let's talk about the Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, or the POLST, P-O-L-S-T. This is the new kid on the block. It is also not a legal document. It is a physician's prescription. It is a replacement for the DNR. Okay. But if you think of the DNR, the DNR only deals with resuscitation if your heart stops and you stop breathing. A pulsed can apply to the to CPR. It can apply to resuscitation, hospitalization, use of antibiotics, intubation. Think of a condition and the physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment you can put in there. So let's say you have stage four brain cancer, you could put in here that I do not want to be treated with a breathing machine. I do not want to have CPR. I do not want to have chemo. I do not want to have radiation. You can describe the treatment that you're willing to accept in the future now so that okay. if you're incapacitated, you're giving someone permission to not treat so or, it's, it's or to treat. Than, uh, it's broader than a DNR. Much is broader it, than a DNR. Is it similar to a DNR in that it needs to be signed by a doctor? Correct. The physician, not the attorney, writes it. Okay. It is also portable between facilities, and traditionally it is printed on pink paper, unlike the DNR, which is on canary yellow paper. Now, the POLST, as I said, is new. In Florida, it's in development. It's not law in Florida yet, but it is law in other states, and we have clients moving in from other states that want the lawyer to update the pulse. And first I say, A, lawyer doesn't do it, the doctor does, but not the doctors in Florida because it's not law here yet. So an example of how these documents all would work together. You're driving down I-4 and you're broadsided by a drunk beer truck driver and you are airlifted to the local hospital that has a level one trauma unit because you have a traumatic brain injury. You are unconscious and unable to consent. They have to give you brain surgery right away to keep you alive who can consent to the surgery because you're unconscious. That would be the person in the healthcare surrogate. Right. They give you the surgery. You are in a coma. You're still unconscious. And it's two days later and you get pneumonia. Who knows whether or not you're allergic to penicillin? That would be the person in the healthcare surrogate. Now, at some point, we want to go sue the drunk beer truck driver and the drunk beer truck company and everyone involved. That would be the durable power of attorney, which we didn't discuss today, but we'll discuss in the future, because that document gives someone the right to pursue your civil rights as well as, as financial rights. At some point, they realize that you are not in a coma. You're in a persistent vegetative state, and 
there is no hope that you are going to get better, and they want to know, because you're on life support, if you would have liked the life support to be removed, that is the person under the living will. In Florida. In Florida. Yes. And... In the meantime, while they're discussing that, you stop breathing. What should they do? Should they do CPR? That would be the do not resuscitate order. If you had a pulsed or the physician's order for life-sustaining treatment, you could have discussed if you even wanted to be put on a breathing machine. You could have discussed if you would have wanted the brain surgery if you had a traumatic brain injury. You could have discussed all sorts of things. You can discuss that you want lemon-scented lotion rubbed into your skin twice a day and you want sheets with flowers on them. You can put anything you want to in the pulse if the doctor will allow it. Okay. Okay. Well, and and I think a conversation to have with clients, and I have it a lot, especially with younger clients, um, whether they're married or not married, they fill out their um, healthcare power of attorney, healthcare surrogate. And we talk about if you're married, you want to name your spouse, who do you want to name as a backup? And a lot of younger folks will say, my mom or my dad. And and that's a pretty in-depth conversation to have with those clients about, think about what position you're putting your parents in if they are in Colorado because the healthcare agent is the one that would be enforcing the presenting the living will, putting them in a position where they're the ones deciding to pull the plug. It's a, it's a tough conversation and it's, I think, a conversation clients need to have with the person they're naming as agent, whoever that person is, um, before they execute the document just to make sure that that person's comfortable making those decisions. True, because the living will in particular, you need somebody with a backbone. Um, when, my, when my dad was dying, it, it was very clear that he was never going to recover and the medical community wanted to do all sorts of surgery with him. He had cancer in his pelvis. He had cancer in his spine. He had cancer in his stomach. He had cancer in his colon. He had cancer in his lungs. Finally, I said, stop doing scans. I mean, obviously he's riddled with cancer. And he also had two different types of dementia. But if you met him, you could have this perfectly lovely conversation because he was adorable and he was sweet and he was kind and he could hold a conversation, but he had no concept of the implications of what he was saying. So... One of the other things to consider is for Medicare to pay for rehab in a skilled nursing facility, you have to keep the patient admitted to the hospital for three nights, not under observation, but admitted. So we knew my dad had to be in the hospital for three nights. Luckily, I'm one of many children. And so we posted a schedule of someone to be with him 24 hours a day because we were afraid that one of the doctors would come in and say, Mr. Bailey, we need to go resection your uh, colon and remove your left lung. And he would have said, great, let's go, because he didn't understand what they were talking about. So my brother, Dwight, was in the hospital room with my dad and our his regular physician, my dad's regular physician, whom we love, was out of town. And so her partner came in and the partner said to my brother, oh, well, we need, you know, we need to treat your dad. And my brother's like, nope. We're not cutting him open up like a pinata. He is just, we're going to keep him here for three nights, and then we're going to let him go to rehab, and he'll be fine. And she said, don't you love your father? How could you not treat your father? And Dwight says, you, out of the room. And she goes, you are a most unpleasant person. And Dwight said, if you think I'm unpleasant, wait till you get a whiff of my sister. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the kind of pressure not a lot of people can deal with a medical professional saying, you must not love your father if you won't let me treat him. 
when they're going to fold. Yeah, when you're already in a very emotional place. Right. But we knew, we knew what my dad wanted and we knew what his boundaries were and we knew he would not want to go through that surgery. There was no hope he was going to get better. It would have been painful and we just didn't want to do it. And he died peacefully 10 days later. And that's why we prepare the documents and have these conversations. Right. But I do talk to my clients, the ones who do discuss the DNR. I remind them that they need to have that conversation with their family members because a DNR means that if you collapse on the floor, not breathing because you had a heart attack, your family members can't call 911 because if they call 911, 911 is going to come and they're going to want to treat and you're going to have to stand there and watch your loved one die. Not many people can do that. So the DNR at home is not always something that is palatable to a family. Right. I agree. So Crystal, I think the lesson to be learned from these is that there are multiple documents. They have different provisions in them and they work together as a team and you can't always pick and choose which documents you want. It's not that the lawyer wants to overwhelm you with paperwork. They just each have a different role. The person's wearing a different hat for each thing, and you need to make sure that you've got the right people named in the right documents. And and review them over time. And have conversations with your family. Yes. Situations change. Decision makers change. How often do you review your documents with your clients? What's your rule of thumb? Uh, I like it to happen every three to five years. That's exactly my number, too. Yeah. 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 And I know sometimes it won't. I mean, you get a feel. Sometimes you meet with clients and they sign your documents and you're pretty certain you're never going to see them again. Um, but I would say over half of my clients, we get together every three to five years. And really in three to five years, the law can change. Children get older. Other people get elderly and you don't want to take them out. Um, you know, things just change. It, the documents might just be fine and it's a good review. And then right. we let them run until the next three to five years unless something specific happened. Right. So we do, we do a pretty good job of reaching out, I think, either through birthday cards or when there's a substantial change in the law, we try and send, if not a specific letter, a generic letter and say, as you may be aware, this just happened. Give us a call if you'd like to discuss how it may affect your documents. Yeah, we send out invitations to our Cookies and Council speaking series that we have monthly. We send out newsletters on a regular basis. We send out birthday cards. Um, we do videos. We're doing all sorts of outreach to our clients to keep them up to date and informed. And, and I find a good review with clients, too. A lot of their financial advisors are involved in the process at some point, and I know Clients are meeting with their financial advisors more often than they're meeting with me. So that's another good opportunity to get in front of somebody, refresh their memory, and financial advisors will say, you may want to talk to Crystal about this. Thanks for joining us. In this podcast, we discussed why lawyers can't prepare a do not resuscitate order, but can prepare living wills and healthcare surrogates. This show gave you a quick primer on the differences between the documents. Some are legal, some are medical. Let us know what you think of this idea. Please contact us at taxbosspodcast.com. In our next podcast, we are going to discuss portability of the federal estate tax exemption. Even if you or your client isn't worth $22.4 million, they may still need to file Form 706 to take advantage of portability, at least until 2025, 
when Congress can change the limits and rules again. Until next time, I'm Meryl Bailey. And I'm Crystal Woodbury. Thanks for joining us. Go dazzle your clients like a tax boss. Today's podcast is sponsored in part by your caring law firm in Maitland, Florida. Do your clients need a will or trust? Has someone died and your clients need help with the endless paperwork? Do you have business owner clients trying to decide how to leave the company fairly amongst your family? Contact your caring law firm where clients are so satisfied, you'll look like a hero for having referred them. Your caring law firm offers probate and trust administration services throughout Florida, as well as estate, asset protection, and tax planning assistance. To learn more, visit yourcaringlawfirm.com.